before we get into the show, I want to tell you about HubSpot for startups. If you are an early stage startup and you're trying to grow, you have to check out our HubSpot for startups program. You can get up to 90% off your first year of your HubSpot subscription. Plus, you will get access to incredible education and events. With HubSpot, you can run your entire startup from marketing sales and customer success all on HubSpot. You can increase your leads, boost revenue, and improve your customer experience. HubSpot for startups help you do it all. Plus, you will get 24-7 customer support and integrations with more than 1,500 of today's most popular apps. HubSpot is trusted by some of the most successful startups and more than 200,000 companies around the world. To see if you're eligible to join the HubSpot for Startups program and take your growth to the next level, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. We did that for like six years. No one's really replicated it. And our open rates are still really, really high, right? And I know N of one doesn't mean like there's a trend, but when I look at AI, I have not seen something that has been truly impressive from a marketing standpoint that did not take a lot of curation and a lot of nuance and a lot of editing from someone who was a great marketer. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Against Degree and your podcast for marketing-minded folks. I am here as always, your co-host, CMO at Zapier, and I am joined by a new and improved co-host. I have Patrick Campbell of Paddle. Yeah, excited to be guest of the pod here, especially the best yeah. guest versus versus Kip. I'll just throw that out there. You're, so. you're a co-host, so you're actually a co-host, not even wow. a guest. Friend, wow. friend of the show, co-host, get to riff on topics with very little prep, like me and Kip, yeah. just five minutes, and then come up with a bunch of things to talk about. That's how yeah, we like to do it That's here. the magic behind the scenes. That's how this actually works for anyone that's who's how it all comes who together. wants to replicate the magic. So, yeah. So I have a great cold open. We're going to talk about why editorial taste and taste in general is the most important skill in the future that a marketer can learn. We're going to debate if a marketer can actually learn that. And we're going to talk about why that is or debate why that is because of the evolution of AI. I wanted to start in something slightly different because I know that you do a ton of great data research. You're putting out all of these research and what makes millionaire happy, spend your money. But I wanted to start because I think I have like a good opener that can kind of lead into some of the research you had there because I'm actually really curious about it. Yeah. It seems like the playbook for successful founders, which you are one of them, you've had an exit. Every founder dreams of having an exit. They finish the game. They get to have the money they need to have, live a good life. And what do they do with their time? They go straight on and try to like get influence, right? Like hmm. they go create Twitter threads. They go create newsletters. They go. Don't make me feel insecure right now. Podcasts. Cheers. I'm wondering, can you bring us behind the scenes? Do people who are really ambitious, do they actually want money or do they want influence? Because I think they want influence. It's kind of funny because I have gone through, and this is the least relatable thing that I'll say. So this is, this is like, this is champagne problems. Like, oh, the poor rich guy, right? So I had an exit. For those who don't know me, I, I sold a bootstrap company. I went from $20,000 in my bank account to a lot, a lot of money. And so what was really interesting about it is you're really even keeled beforehand as a founder. 
because that you know that's what you have to do to like build something to a certain level or you know and being an exec it's the exact same thing once you become a really experienced exec your kind of ups and downs start to become pretty flat because you've dealt with everything you've gotten through a lot of different stuff and stuff like that well once you go through this this exit you all of a sudden that whole like even keeledness goes out the window because everyone starts treating you like a god even though you're like i i think i actually could have done better, right? Because that's the founder mentality. Right. Like I actually felt, and this is more about like my my lack of self-esteem than anything. I actually felt, oh, well, if I did it, it must not have been that hard. So I got to go try something, you know, harder, which is like so screwed up. I wasn't hugged enough as a child, blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> it's, it's just super interesting. But to answer your question, as you go through this cycle, and there's a bunch of other fun things about the cycle, again, very unrelatable. <laughs> but as you go through this cycle, you start to realize that like at the end of the day, money is just a tool. And it's it's like that for investors, you know, in, in a business and such like that. So money can help you do stuff and there's a lot more optionality. But you start to realize right. like, one, you love the grind. So for me, all of a sudden, I the best advice I got was go back to zero on something as soon as possible. So I started doing video shorts because I'd never done that before. And I'm back at zero and I'm really bad at it. And I'm getting better. But it's one of those things that it's like starting at zero. And then the other piece of advice was, you know, you, you always have to figure out what your wall is, you know, what the wall you're trying to get through or trying to get to the other side of. And a lot of people who end up not doing so well after an exit, and there's a lot of people who end up becoming alcoholics and things like that, it's mainly because they don't have that wall. But to answer your question directly, I think influence is a really big thing because for me, I went, oh, I just sold my list. I sold my like brand, which was really associated with the company. Who am I? And, and what does that look like? And so this is why I've started doing more and more content, apart from also being part of my job as well. And so hopefully that gave a little bit of deeper context and answered your question somewhat directly. Okay, and I think one of the interesting things that you've done recently, you love data research, gather it all the time. You gather some like really cool insights. You started sharing on Twitter in terms of like the realities of what make people happy. I think it's like millionaires happy. Maybe just share some of the things for the audience around what you find within that data. So- most unrelatable data as well. So we're going to just keep the unrelatable podcast. Hey, that's what we like. Going. We like to be very I know, unrelatable, we like unrelatable on things. Yeah, that's what gets views. <laughs> that's what gets people to watch. Yes. Get clicks. But the basic idea, and there's a fun lesson in this. The basic idea is that I, again, on this fun champagne cycle of craziness, of, of emotion and existential crisis, I started digging in and, you know, instead of like maybe talking to a therapist or like talking to my friends, I was like, let's go collect a bunch of data. And so I was always enamored by the study that talks about like, hey, once you reach $75,000 in, in salary, you apparently, there's there's no more happiness you'll gain from additional income. And that always kind of That's bothered so me because, well, it's, so it is untrue. And, and in defense... Dr. Thaler, who, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist, like, that's not what he said in the paper either. But without going nerdy into Google Scholar here, you know, I can kind of skip that part. But the limitations of that study is like, it didn't account for inflation, location, and most importantly, there were no like higher net worth or even millionaires really in the study. It was very, very minimal. And so right. I wanted to kind of see like, what was, what would be the continuation? And I don't have all of the data yet and all the analysis, but like the preliminary results showed some interesting things. Like one, your happiness does continue to increase as your income and as your net worth increases. Now, it doesn't increase as much, meaning going from $20,000 in annual income to $100,000 in annual income is a huge spike in happiness, but going from a million dollars in in income to, you know, 2 million doesn't increase it as much, right? Which again, like that stands to reason. But the other thing that was really, really interesting, two points. One, probably not as interesting to everyone, but the first one was of folks who are a bit higher net worth, so over a million dollars in net worth, 
their happiness is very much tied to the increase or decrease of that particular net worth. So if their net worth decreased, they would kind of fall apart. If their net worth like would mm. go up, there was actually some happiness, but not as much as if it decreased, you know, and, and went down yeah. in terms of happiness, but kind of applicable to everyone. A cool, here's, here's the, something that's relatable for everybody. I looked at kind of what were the most important things that people, you know, use the money for and then looked at the relative happiness, right? So basically like what they're spending money on, you know, how does that determine their happiness? And first, people who like the most important thing was spending money on stuff, they were the least happy. They weren't unhappy, but they were like the least happy. People who were spending money on stuff that was related to like a hobby or some deep passion, they were a bit happier, but not necessarily like super happy. Then you get into experiences. Those people were even happier because they were spending money on, you know, adventures and probably with their friends, family, et cetera. And then the top two happiest kind of indicators, spending money on other people, that increased happiness significantly. And there's been a lot of other studies that have talked about this. And then the, the, the most interesting one where it was hard to kind of code this, but the basic idea was freedom-inducing events or activities. And what that is are basically things like, well, I have enough money that I don't have to wait in line at the airport, I can charter a plane. Mm -hmm. Or I have enough money, I don't have to right. go to the grocery store, I can have someone. And when I looked at folks who weren't as high net worth, because we collected data from them as well, this also like increased happiness. And so, you know, spending money on DoorDash, yeah, maybe it's not the most economical thing to do, but it is something that does increase happiness and probably your waistline as well. But it's one of those things that's super, super interesting to kind of think about where you don't have to be rich necessarily to to spend the money that you have um, in a way that makes you more fulfilled and quote unquote happy. I love that. I think that's there's there's something in there around time as well, because all those things give you time back. Yeah. Like if you feel like you're not wasting time within those things. And so the reason I wanted to bring that up and start with that, because I feel like that's a good example of what we're going to talk about, which is like editorial taste or just taste. Whereas yeah. you, you know, you're really good at trying to find these kind of pockets of questions or pockets of things that people will be interested in, retrieve data and then tell a story around them that's like really, really engaging. Mm. And one of the things we want to do in this show today is like, we want to get into what do we mean by taste? Why do we think it becomes more important in an AI world? I want to kick off, Patrick, with just like talking to you a little bit about the creative framework and see if you agree or not. So I was watching a bunch of TED Talks on creativity and mm. creativity in an AI world and looking at all the kind of research studies. And so one of the things that someone said is like, there's a really clear framework for creativity. And I really like this, which is, you know, first step is learning. So you, like your example is like, hey, I have this question and I want to learn about it because I gathered a bunch of data. But then there's the ideation, which is like, okay, well, how do I take this and then create something like interesting from it? And then there's to production and distribution. And they're all technological advancements have really ushered in greater areas of like creativity because they have like really accelerated learning, production, distribution, right? And so like print and press, books, industrial revolution, fashion, mm. computers and internet, all of the internet businesses. And so maybe let's just start there. How do you think about that framework? And do you yeah. think that is a teachable framework to marketers, like every single component? Or do you think there's parts of that that you are either going to be good at or forever bad at? Like I was as a coder. Right. I tried to code. Yeah. And no matter how much I tried to code, I was an average coder. And I wonder about the ideation part is like, no matter how much you try to have good ideas, are you going to be an average ideator? I think the thing that's missing is, and, and some people will disagree with this, is, is a goal or some sort of feedback loop. Because right. when I think about taste and, and where this kind of came from, I believe that a lot of the AI stuff and really like, let's not even put AI into it. I think marketing, 
even before AI, as we got information kind of proliferation, as we got all this automation, both kind of HubSpot style automation and like Zapier style automation. See, I, I wanted to get both Kip and Kieran. I wanted you to get both, both represented. Get, yeah, you I wanted to get both represented hey. there. But as all of this kind of came to be, and we stopped getting new marketing channels, right? Because marketing was so much about like chasing the next channel, right? You had that yes. fun curve of like channels only last three years. And it's like, well, now channels, they last a long time because they're all we have, right? This was so important for this question or this topic, because what that meant is that you as a marketer needed to develop taste, right? You needed to develop taste in order to understand this ideation process, this research, this creation, and then this feedback cycle of, am I getting the most out of this particular channel? Is my SEO strategy, you know, going in this direction? Is my outbound sales going in this direction? Is my account-based marketing going in this direction? So on and so forth. And so I think that the piece that's missing from the framework that you said is that goal, right? right? Ultimately, when I'm in a channel and I'm trying to increase my SEO traffic, that particular traffic is so important and that goal needs to go up by 20%. That taste loop or that ideation loop is all of a sudden going to, you know, basically develop as I continue to test different things. And what's interesting about this is that taste in one channel is different than taste in another channel. And so, yeah, I, I agree with the framework, but I think the goal is is of, of supreme importance. Yeah, I think there's something you said really important there, which is, first of all, Web2 was, Kip and I talk about this all the time, was like the greatest time to build your career in marketing. It was so fun because you had all of these new channels that were growing you had new ways to actually acquire customers, very trackable. So you get to sit mm-hmm. in the big seat within companies and say, look at the amount of revenue that I drove. But as the Web 2 became more and more bundled, like there was a really important thing that you said there, which is we run out of marketing channels. Yeah. And so like everyone is crammed into the same channels. And when I think about the ideation part, one of the things that AI and algorithms like have been doing for years within Web 2 and will get more proliferated in the next version AI is like if you just take paid advertising, now, in marketing in an era gone by, the advertising, like, we look back to like all of the great copywriters, generational copywriters, and we look at the advertising. Wow, look at the strap line, look at the copy, look at the creative. And we think a lot about like the ideation of that creative and what went in to make that ad successful. And then if you look at advertising today, the algorithms and the platforms have somewhat kind of downplayed the creativity. Mm. It basically tweaks and automates everything for you, right? It does all of these kind of micro process and micro targeting, micro optimizations in real time. And so like, let's see one example and search is somewhat like there's an argument to be made that search will become much more similar as AI becomes more prolific in all these tools and help you do all the things. Like I saw a founder demoed me a tool that kind of replicated HubSpot's entire content SEO strategy, but you could do it like in a very automated way. And it starts to make me think, wow, like, a lot of the ideation maybe comes out of these channels because the AI, the algorithm starts to like optimize it away. Do you think that remains true if everyone has an equal playing field up to a certain point? Meaning if everyone can do HubSpot's SEO strategy, do you think that like, do we get into a world where all of a sudden now it just doesn't work for anybody because everyone's doing it? Or do we get into a world where like the true marketers, the true like OGs need to rise above it? Like what's your take on that? Yeah. So I think this is the interesting point. If we look through time and we say, okay, well, like there was a great YouTube video, a really old interview with Gary Vaynerchuk. And he talked about, I think he was like doing email newsletters back in 2001 for his like wine store. And he talked about his open rate and click-through rates. I was was like 97% open rates. Yeah. Yeah, That's (laughs) my Gary V impression. Do you know how many times I send an email? Sorry. Yeah. He's like, 
do everything. I was doing everything back in the day, hustling, grinding. But he was getting like probably lots of like open and quickly rates because it's a novel thing. And if you look at email today, like if you take an average email marketer and you take an incredible email marketer, what's the delta between their open and click-through rates? And I think you do incredible email. Every time I got an email from you from ProfitWell, I always go to reply before yeah. I realized like what was happening. Like, and I, I work <laughs> in this, in this industry. Like I work and I do marketing on I'm like, oh, reply. Oh no, that that's right. He's automating this shit. But like, it, you know, you're really good at it. So maybe you can talk to this. But I would say that the delta between those things is not great, right? Like it's great versus okay. Probably the delta is not huge. And so I wonder how impactful it is to be great in some of these channels in the future. We'll be right back. But let me tell you about a podcast from our network. Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network your audio destination for business professionals. Join husband and wife team, Al and Leanne Elliott, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. Their audience loves the show's unique blend of theory and practice, which helps business owners and leaders simplify consumer psychology. If you enjoy learning what makes people tick, then this is the show for you. Recently, they did an amazing episode on what makes your team say yes. Exploring the Psychology of Influence. Phil Agnew shares his rich experience in behavioral science and delves into the intricate psychology of influence. They explore the fine line between influence and manipulation, uncovering how subtle cues and messaging impact team decision-making and motivation. Whether you're a leader, marketer, or anyone interested in the art of intelligence, this episode is packed with strategies and psychological principles to understand and harness the power of yes in teams and organizations. Listen to Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture wherever you get your podcasts. So let's let's take a step back for a second because I think that's a really, really interesting point. And my counter to that would be automation allowed us to send infinitely more emails, right? And yes, someone went from zero because they weren't doing anything to all of a sudden, you know, even in like database marketers, like I'm talking about before database marketers back in the day, which no one listening to this, you know, knows what a database marketer is anymore, right? But what's really interesting is all of a sudden we started sending more emails. So there was an average open rate, right? right. And let's say it was like, I don't know, 10%, which I'm making up is probably being really generous. Well, even under that circumstance, there were people who were able to get 30% open rates because right. they looked at what was going on in the field. Now, is it something where there are going to be so many 10% open rates that it hurts my 30%? Absolutely. But that's just going to push me to get better and better, right? Like the reason the ProfitWell emails work so well is because we looked at it from a very first principles basis. And we said, we're trying to just get someone to open. Then we're trying to get someone to look at the first line. And then we're trying to get some sort of an action, you know, throughout that email. And it took a lot of like thinking through a lot of taste, a lot of like iterations and a lot of like feedback cycles to realize, okay, we need to like write this as if we're writing to our mom or our friend, because that's going to make sure that the language comes off so like clean that all of a sudden, you know, Kieran's going to think, oh, this is Patrick actually emailing me. I need to reply. And then we would add automation, right? And it took a long time to get there. And we did that for like six years. No one's really replicated, right? And our open rates are still really, really high, right? And I know N of one doesn't mean like there's a trend, but when I look at AI, I have not seen something that has been truly impressive from a marketing standpoint that did not take a lot of curation and a lot of nuance and a lot of editing from someone who was a great marketer. Right. 
I haven't seen someone just out of the box send great outbound emails. They're not great, right? And so this leads me to, are we all hyped on like the potential, meaning these LLMs are going to develop taste over time because there's going to be these feedback cycles. And even if they do, there's probably still going to be this element where there are just going to be some channels that are kind of destroyed because everyone can be somewhat good at them because they didn't require a lot of taste. At least that's my theory. Or are we living in an environment where there's just going to be a lot more crap? So all of a sudden, it's somewhat easier to stand out. I'm always amazed at this. I'm amazed at like how, and, and, and to be frank, I think it's because like, and this is a little controversial for this audience, but like, I think there's just a lot of marketers out there. There's just a lot of people who like- Oh no, that's not controversial. Okay, that's but true. like they just copy and paste, right? And But they right. don't even copy and paste like the right stuff. Like our event strategy without going deep into it, we are extremely effective at like trade shows or like those styles of events. We have all these activations. We come out from a growth rate. We're always like a middle type sponsor, but we always get number one in terms of scans, appointment setting and all this other stuff. We've been doing the same things again for like five years. Everyone sees it. It's really hard to like hide something that's going on in an event when we're giving away this or we're giving away that. We have done the same things for multiple years. No one has copied us. Absolutely no one has copied us. And it's either because there's like this weird insecurity about it, like, oh, I can't copy them or something like that, which, you know, is, is one thing. Or it's just people don't care or they don't get it, right? And so when I look at this, until AI is at a point, and I'm getting a little ranty, so apologies there, but like until AI gets to a point where it's like, Okay, now I can replicate Ogilvy. I can replicate Gary V and right. put him or her in this context of this modern world. I think it's just a tool. It's just a tool that yeah. is going to make better marketers even better and worse marketers marginally better. Yeah, and then lazy marketers infinitely more annoying because <laughs> it's just going to be able to yeah, produce more and stuff. Like, and for most companies, that's okay. A lazy marketer that like just churns and burns through email lists and all this other stuff, they get enough of a pop, like that's fine. But I think the rest of us, like, we're really trying to, like, be great at this. And now we're, you know, now we're all, like, nervous because we're like, oh, this is going to make, Kieran's going to be so much better at me as a CMO. Oh, no, I have to get better, you know, and all that kind of fun stuff, which I think is great. I like that. I actually don't disagree with most of that. I think that today AI is a tool that needs a lot of human assistance. Like, I've seen a bunch of companies who are building these kind of, you've probably seen them, the AI email tools. They take stuff from LinkedIn and they actually personalize it towards people. It's better than a lot of like people would do because people can't personalize at scale. Like they find it really hard to personalize at scale. Yeah. I think AI hallucinates a lot. That's one of the largest problems with it, right? And so you actually do need to have a human looking at that, being an editor for that, making it better because it hallucinates too much. I think the thing that I'm trying to think through is, okay, like marketing used to be art and then we had the internet and it became like art science, right? And then somewhere I think we got way too science because we could measure everything. And we were like looking at the data and saying, well, we should only do things that the data tell us we should do, right? And so everyone kind of gets pushed into the middle of like what they do. They all kind of look the same. And I wonder if AI pushes us back to the opposite end of the extremes where the people who are deeply technical will actually be much more successful because they're going to understand how to use LLM models. They're going to understand how to use AI technology, data, all of these things to build these kind of incredible experience for their customers that we're not previously been able to do, which is like these kind of growth ops folks. And then on the opposite end, the art people, the people who are truly incredible at creating things that feel like they come from a human because they do, that elicit emotions because I think we're going to want more emotions elicited from a human in an AI world because everything's going to start to look the same. And I wonder like those two things increase in value and then at the same time, people who are kind of like optimizing in these channels, 
does it drag everyone into like the same sort of category of like experience because AI is able to do is what you're able to do? So that's mm-hmm. what I've been trying to think through is like, okay, like do these two things become much more important, which is like the art piece and the science piece, but you have to be incredible at either or of those things to be like really valuable in the world to come. I quibble a little bit with the art and science, but mainly because I think the art is just like, we're not, we're not producing a Van Gogh, right? Like we're not producing, we're not trying to create yeah, yeah, like something yeah, like yeah. that, right? No, no, no. And I know, well, I know this podcast is Leonardo. This so, is like Leonardo yeah. Michelangelo. This podcast, this is, come on. This is the greatest performance art. We get on computers <laughs> with microphones and talk marketing to one another. Target. Yeah, yeah. But the art point is like, I think the art point is just creativity. And you, you and Kip have talked mm. about this a lot, right? Yeah. And creativity is not, creativity is a function of feedback. And feedback is basically a function of like reps and like seeing what works and seeing what doesn't. So in a lot of ways, like that is science. Now, what the reason we call it art, and again, this is such a side note, I'm, I'm, I'll be quick. But the reason we call it art is because it's really hard to explain, right? Like when you come up with a strategy, Kieran, I don't know if you can truly explain to someone who like, isn't in the know or isn't on your level from a marketing perspective, like why you're doing it or what it is, because it just, you just feel it. Right. And you feel it because there's some aspect that you don't necessarily understand. And you're looking for certain data and you subconsciously or consciously remember that in like year two of HubSpot or something, this thing happened and that type of a thing. Right. So I think what that means is it doesn't have to be so complicated. I think it just comes back to attention right? Mm. We're just trying to get attention. That's all we're trying to do. And we're trying to get like the right attention, right? Now the right attention, that's where it becomes really complicated to discuss because doing a Mr. Beast style video when you're like a very buttoned up enterprise B2B brand, that seems like a huge risk. So you're going to get attention, but is it the right attention? And then, you know, doing obviously a, a webinar, that's like, you know, easy to, to be the right attention. And so when I look at AI I, I, and the kind of the dichotomy that you put together, I think that dichotomy has always existed. Some people are right. pretty good at both. They're not masters or, or experts at both. And some people are experts at one, but not the other. And I think the attention piece is there's just going to be some channels where they just kind of go away because it's so easy to automate the hell out of them that creativity, even if it's creativity and kind of the data and the strategy and the automation just isn't going to be there, right? Yeah. But I don't know. Like I keep coming back to... And I don't know why this is the metaphor that, that pops into my head, but it's like, like, you know, the people who question U.S. treasuries and sometimes for good reason when we're like debating the debt ceiling and then someone goes, all right, if they can't pay treasuries, we have a larger problem because the world has ended. Like ever, like there's, <laughs> there's gas shortages, all this other stuff, because that means like this entire house of cards has come down. It's like that with AI. It's like if AI truly, truly completely replicates your job yeah, as I, a marketer, exactly. it's like, I mean... It's probably an amazing, somewhat dystopian world because we're just hanging out with our little goggles on, like doing whatever we want because there's no need for money anymore. There's no need for anything anymore. And, and you know, governments or, you know, society has hopefully solved some of the, the ramifications of that. So I don't know. That might be wishful thinking. That might be like an old man holding on to the old world. But I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting to think about. No, I don't disagree with that. I think we have not proven... Maybe encoding is the best example where it's like really an incredible assistant. And it's like, there's been studies to show that it's reduced work by 55%, allows coders to build much more stuff. I think one of the things the world is always has a pent up demand is like want to build more things. Like, and even in any company, I'm sure it's the same in Profitable. Like if you could have more engineering power on tap, there's probably tons of more stuff that you would have built. Like every company has this whole backlog of stuff they want to build. The other thing that is like, I was trying to think, I went down a rabbit hole in creativity is like, I kind of thought about my attempts to be a coder and like 
the creativity thing, is it like a thing you have or a thing you can learn? I like the way that you said feedback loops. I did see a study that said like people who are more creative, it's from the National Institutes of Health, have more connections between their right and left hemispheres of their brain, Mm. which means they can do more crosstalk and actually go deeper or make more links between more distinct concepts, right? They can actually make all of these kind of links between these distinct concepts and maybe have like more of these kind of light bulb moments. But I do think you get much more creative based upon like your environment, like the people you actually spend time with, the things that you're consuming. And to your point, like the feedback loops that you're getting. Mm. I wonder like if you're going to start another company in the future and one of the things you did at ProfitWell was you were really all in on content and media from the start. And I want to make sure we differentiate between those two things because they... I think it's not done enough in SaaS. Like there's traditional content marketing that we've done, which is like, hey, we created like educational blog posts. We created PDFs, we created webinars. Then there's like media that comes in from like the way that it feels like a media company. And you, that's what you did. You had the whole kind of podcast network. You did like all of these kind of fun videos. You did things that are much different. I went to your event. I went to the talk where you just said churn for 20 minutes and (laughs) I will never forget that talk. But you did these kind of outlandish things to try to, test and push the limits of what we could do within SaaS. Given that what you know about AI today and just what you learned from ProfitWell and where you think it might go in the future, like what would you change about the way, if anything, you do that the next time? It's mm, a great question. I almost want to turn the question on you because I feel like, you know, Zapier is is so poised to like take advantage of the AI revolution, not only from like a operations standpoint, because I know the culture a bit, but also just from a product standpoint. So I'm curious what you'll say, but I'll answer first. Yeah, and I can answer. Yeah. What's really funny is I think a lot would have changed on the product side. And we were already kind of including like we were early, you know, putting machine learning into the product. And, and that was back in the day where machine learning was not AI. You know, it was like, oh, that's not AI. Like you can't say that. And now it's like all the same. So I don't know if a lot would change in the marketing side because the marketing side, the reason we did content and then the reason we were one of the first folks to do media was because it was, how do we get awareness? How do we get attention, right? And it really came down to, we have this low TAM, you know, logo TAM, excuse me, where there's only about 150,000 companies in our our space. Therefore, this is the way that we're going to get the best ROI. So I think from there, we would have probably done what a lot of people are doing now. We would have hired, we still would have hired an automation and AI person, the full time. They would have like, that's all they would have done. They would have gone from team to team, company wide, done a bunch of different things. I think from a content perspective, this probably would be part of our teaching. We probably would have a whole show on like how to use AI because all of our, you know, everyone, you know, a lot of people listening to this are software, you know, folks and, you know, they want to know what's going on. But I don't know, this goes back to the stuff we were talking about. It's like AI is not a strategy. AI is, unless you are a, a specific AI picks and shovels type company, AI is very much like, this is just now part of our company and we have to use it here, here, here and everywhere and, and kind of go from there. I think we would have went faster because I think AI is going to make everything faster. I think it would allow us to do more. Yeah, I don't know if that's a really satisfying answer, but I, I, I don't think there would be a, a dramatic thing that we would change beyond hopefully going faster. Yeah, I think it makes sense for your company because you were doing what I would equate to the things that you have to do more of in the future, which is like have a personality. Yeah. Like that's the biggest thing that I think is going to be the change within B2B is like what happens when every single homepage is fast and easy? And it really is because every software app has a natural language interface. So yes, it is easier to use this and it's going to be much, much faster. And so what, how do I differentiate between those things? I think it's going to be much more like B2C where your brand has to be, have a point of view, has to have a personality. That means we need to break free of the shackles of like the stuffy kind of B2B. We're sell, you know, we're a business. We have to be like, we can't say anything outlandish in case people give us like negative reviews on social. 
like you, you know, again, coming back, regardless of how you feel about that presentation you did or not, hopefully you feel it was worthwhile and you learned a lot. Of course. But like having the ball to stand up and do that and have personality and do, like it gets you traction, right? And you're not thinking, well, this may actually get negative PR. Like who gives a f right? Yeah. Like you have to have something that actually stands out on the, on the internet when everything looks the same. That's coming all the way back to taste. That is going to be hard for SaaS marketers and hard for marketers in general to like break themselves free of being able to like go outside of the B2B comfort zone and fall flat on their face and create shit that people don't, you know, give them negative feedback, don't actually consume and keep going, keep grinding it out and try to get like actual that taste into your brand, into your messaging, into your point of view, into your content. And for me, the last thing I'll just say is I think to be a successful company in the future, you have to win on video. Like, I think that that, like you're doing the short from video. I just truly believe video is the medium that you have to win on. And I think if you win on video and you can add some insights here, you can do the traditional born stuff that maybe worked in text. You have to have entertainment. You have to have pop culture. You have to have that creativity and taste to make that video stand out. Video is a hard place to win on the internet. I think the one thing that you said there that's so, 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 so powerful, and this is something that is really worth saying again, is that attention aspect. It will be harder to get attention, right? It's just going to be, it's always going to be harder, but that was not an AI thing. Maybe AI accelerates that a little bit or a lot, but like the thing to keep in mind is that memories are really short. They're very, very short. And so if that churn talk, and for those who don't know, I went to a conference and I give so many keynotes. I was like, what's like the next iteration of keynotes? And it's probably like almost like a show, right? It's almost like an actual like edutainment type show. Well, the first step in that was like, let's just do something a little crazy. So I just, I had a slide deck that had words and, you know, was a story, but I said the word churn. The only word I said was the word churn. And I just said it with, you know, inflection and a bunch of other things. But doing stuff like that, if it falls flat, people forget relatively quickly. Or there's just a lot more leads that just don't even know that happened because it doesn't spread unless it's like absolutely dreadful, Mm. which even if you're going to do something that's a risk, you have to do it somewhat well. But if it works out really well, I get a ton of people that come up to me and like, oh, that was awesome. And right. And obviously at the conference, we were like, we were just the talk of the town for the rest of the conference because it was just such a, such a crazy thing that, that no one expected. Right. And so I think it's doing more stuff like that earlier on, but the taste comes in, as you said, and like knowing where in the line are you like too far and where in the line are you like not far enough to give an example, like for my personal brand, for lack of a better phrase, I recently did a little study on like the Bud Light controversy because I was just trying to figure out I like, read this. Yeah. And I was like trying to figure yeah. out like, is this, is it truly that there's just so many people that hate that it could, it could, you know, take down $20 billion in, you know, market cap for a company or is it a little more complicated? Well, you know, without getting into it, unless you want to, like it was a little more complicated, but it was so different than some of the stuff that I had posted because it was kind of political, even though I was collecting a bunch of data on it. And it also, the narrative graded against mostly what Twitter, you know, narrative is because it wasn't like these people suck. These people are great. It was kind of like, well, there's some nuance here that all of a sudden I got some backlash and it's like, it's backlash that like no one really cares about. Cause it was like three weeks ago at this point, but right. it was one of those things where I took that risk. And so now I learned a little bit of like, Oh, really controversial thing. I need to have a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. Or maybe I just don't do it. And I kind of continue on, you know, in terms of, in terms of that personal brand. Yeah. I read that. It was like, you, you were trying to describe, I think it was Bud Light. What can you give this one to be trans? Yeah. Or? So basically Bud Light, it's a really good topic, I think, for the show because there's a lot of this happening now, but it's a little controversial. So Bud Light, they used an influencer who's a trans woman and it was like a simple TikTok sponsorship. 
she did a reel and like, it was just like, I love Bud Light. That's all it was. And then some of the right wing kind of media groups started talking about it and obviously saying not great things about it. And what happened is, is because this kind of happens like people sponsor, you know, different things that are a little controversial. Pride has been, you know, a thing in marketing for a long time. But then the powder keg really kind of took off when there were some leaked videos internally where the head of brand was talking about. And, and honestly, like I felt really bad for her because it was a meeting you and I could have had. Kim, right. Because she was just like, well, we're trying to move our brand to this. And, you know, the past brand. I saw that. This yeah, the, the past brand, it was, it was you know, it was kind of fratty. And like, she she wasn't really negative. But she just talked about like, we need to expand. And in order to expand, you got to be more inclusive and blah, blah, blah. So it's like something you or I would say, even no matter our political views or no matter what we thought about this. Well, then the right-wing media latched onto that and just exploded it and made it into this us versus them thing. It was very much like, they hate you, they don't like you. It was very similar, actually, to, I don't know if you remember when Hillary Clinton ran for office against Donald Trump, there was that thing that leaked that where she said, oh, Trump supporters are just yeah. deplorables. Yeah. And what right. happened in, in that case, and also in the Bud Light case, is there was all these like middle people, at least this is the data that I pulled supports, that they don't really care about the trans issue, meaning like they're not not supportive or supportive. They're kind of like, well, do whatever you want, you know, free country, whatever. But as soon as it was, we don't want your support, we want to move on from your support, all of a sudden it turned into this like really, really big thing. And so, of course, there's bigots who boycotted Bud Light and stuff like that. But again, that another topic that you right, guys should right. go deep on because now it's Target and Starbucks and all this other stuff. But that was something that like I had never really done something on a political topic. I think it's a good example. And that unfortunately is a political topic, even though it's a marketing topic. And right. all of a sudden, like, you know, it, it did well from a views perspective, but it's part of those views were rage views. And so I don't know right. if I really want that as part of my brand, but I have to stretch a little bit to get out of that, that comfort zone that I'm in because I'm not just talking about SaaS anymore in order to kind of learn like, you know, what works. And in that one, I probably wouldn't do that study in the same way or the, the, the posts in the same way I did it before. If not ever again, I'm still looking at some of the data on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great example of like, you know, how do I stretch myself? And when you stretch yourself, you're not always going to fall within the category that you want to be and you're going to like stretch yourself in ways where you're like probably not the thing I'm going to cover in the future not because I think you covered that through data by the way so just when people are listening like you did not give one view or the other you were like talking yeah. about the data and here's what some the data things said. That, yeah, here's, yeah here's what some data said but obviously we live in a times where people are going to find things kind of triggering and yeah. so uh, but again great example of taste so I think we can wrap up I think that you know our our message in here is I think we were giving really positive message. We are saying that the marketer in the future is kind of aided by AI, but those marketing skill sets are still incredibly important. Sure, some of it gets commoditized, but that creativity part, those technical parts, like they still really, really matter. And the thing that you said that I really want people to take away from the show is like feedback loops are so incredibly important. And there's two parts to that. You need to do work to get feedback loops. <laughs> And you actually need to do things on a continual basis and grind, coming all the way back to the very first word you use. Grind, 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 grind. Nothing is for free. I'm going to leave it there. Leave it there. <laughs> all right. We're going to leave it there. Until next time, everyone. This is Marketing Against the Green. We will see you in the next show.